Well, at this very uncertain, unprecedented time, school reopening is causing a lot of stress. We know that it's causing anxiety and we have parents uh, calling the newsroom, emailing us questions. And that is why this virtual town hall seems so important because we want to address some of those anxieties and maybe come up with some solutions and some guidance. I appreciate you all being with us today. I want to introduce you uh, once again. Carla Collins is joining us. And uh, Carla, if you can wave. Uh, Carla is a second grade teacher at the Liberty School System. And she's also a parent. Amy Smith, she is a parent and mom of four uh, who go to the Boardman schools in various school buildings. We have Superintendent Pete Perrone. He is the Struthers City School Superintendent. Uh, they have announced some plans already, I believe, and he's going to be sharing some of that. Ricky Queener uh, is joining us. She is a parent of kids in the Youngstown City Schools. Youngstown has already said they will be doing remote learning. And Dr. Frank Esper, he is a pediatric infectious disease physician with the Cleveland Clinic also researches uh, new viruses, novel viruses uh, of respiratory, um, uh, I should, should say of respiratory, what would you say, Doc? Uh, they're all respiratory viruses. There's hundreds of them, but obviously we're talking about the coronavirus today. Okay, excellent. We, we're glad to have you. And Ohio Education Association, Dr. I'm sorry, Scott DeMauro. I just gave you a new title, Scott. <laughs> Scott DeMauro, thank you so much for being with us as well. That was the easiest PhD that anybody's ever heard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start with, you know, what is on your mind? I'd like to go to uh, Ricky. If I can go to you first, um, Youngstown has, has spoken out and said they will do all remote learning for students this coming fall. And what are your feelings about that? I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety about knowing that they'll be at home. Yeah. Um, well, there's mixed emotions, of course. Um, anxiety, knowing that they will be here and their learning is my responsibility, um, as well as working from home, um, continuing to do that with children. Um, it, it's not always the you know easiest pie day, um, but it's the mixed emotion of knowing what I have to deal with but I'm happy that I know what I have to deal with and that I'm able to say, okay, my school is starting remote. Um, let me wrap my head around getting a schedule together for our day, making sure I have all the utility or utilities, the um, things I need at home, the tools, pencils, the pencil sharpeners, everything that I need at home for them to have a good year. So I'm happy about that, that I know that I'm starting remote. And you know ahead regardless, of time. Yes, and regardless of how I feel, I'm able to start a plan and put my feelings to the side and get, get something in motion. Thank you, Ricky. Amy, um, can I go to you? What is on your mind um, as you prepare for four children to go back to school, one of which is going to be a senior? Yeah, yeah, definitely he's ready to go back to school and he wants to go. I asked him before we hopped on. Um, obviously, he doesn't want to miss out on a lot of his laughs. Um, like you said, I have kids in three different buildings, which gives me three different issues. The oldest are pretty self-sufficient. They're in high school. They weren't too difficult, you know, when we had to jump into it in, in the spring. 
um, it was actually my junior high student that had the hardest time emotionally. Uh, they really, really like that interaction with their teacher and the instruction that they get that I'm not qualified to give, quite frankly. I do have a master's degree, but not in education. Um, so that was a complicated part of it. Um, you've known me for a while. I know, you know, I like structure. You know, I like schedules. So I re we really don't know what our school year is going to look like. We don't know if it's partially remote, fully remote, um, or we're going to go full in and try to go to school uh, full time. So uh, that little bit of the unknown is a little unsettling right now because it's coming fast. The unknown. And Amy, if yeah. you could come a little closer to the computer for your audio, just to be a little louder. Thank you. Um, Amy said something that I think we've all said, the unknown. Carla, that's something that you're dealing with um, as you prepare to uh, transition back to school, not only in terms of sending your kids, but teaching, right? Right. So um, I 100% think that kids need that face-to-face -face learning, and there are a lot of gaps um, that these kids are going to be coming to us at, um, so they're already like we're having to dig them out of a hole to begin with, um, and they definitely need that sense of normalcy, um, but as a teacher, from the teacher perspective, um, there's so many puzzle pieces to think about, um, so I think figuring out how to make sure that each puzzle piece of this whether it be, you know, how are the teachers going to be safe? How are the parents going to be safe? How are the kids going to be safe? Um, what happens if this happens? What happens if this happens? Um, there's just so many things to consider. Um, and that does cause a lot of anxiety. Superintendent Perone, can I uh, go to you for a moment? As you hear what the, you know, the parents are saying and, and school teacher, I'm sure it's very similar in your district. And absolutely. And I would speak to all the parents. I mean, obviously I'm a parent too of, of two school age children. Every concern that the parents are asking are the same concerns the superintendents have. You know, we have a tremendous weight on our shoulders of, of keeping, you know, five-year-olds safe all the way up to 65-year-olds safe who work in our, our districts. So, we have those same concerns and, and we're asking those same questions to our, our public health um, in Mahoning County and at the state level. So we understand the concerns of, of the parents. Scott, if you could speak on uh, something that Superintendent Perone just mentioned, they have to protect the teachers and the students and the community at large. Uh, your concern has been in the past that some of the teachers who could be vulnerable are in positions where um, they could be very, very close to contracting this virus if, if there aren't proper safety measures, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think uh, I, I just want to echo first what, what Carla said, and that is that, you know, our members and the Ohio Education Association represents uh, teachers and education support professionals who perform a variety of roles from bus drivers to school secretaries to cafeteria workers, uh, paraprofessionals. Uh, and what I hear consistently is that everybody is really, really uh, interested in, and wants to get back to the school year and connect with their students. Uh, we care deeply about the success of students, but we want to make sure that when schools open uh, in whatever form that takes, that people are going to be safe. 
Uh, and, and I'm really interested in hearing more from Dr. Esper uh, about this, but, but what I've been seeing more and more, especially over the course of the summer, is that I think earlier there was this notion that, that this was a concern just about the adults, but the kids were going to be fine and there's no reason to worry about uh, kids getting sick. You know, I have a, a colleague of mine from my home district in central Ohio uh, who's been dealing with three uh, of her children who are COVID positive, who've been quarantined for the last two weeks, uh, 19, 18, and eight years old. Uh, and I'm hearing more and more stories of, of our members uh, who, and, and a lot of them are not necessarily older and not necessarily sick, uh, who are finding that they're being exposed. And this virus is taking all kinds of uh, unexpected twists and turns. So we want to make sure that, that however school opens, uh, that health and safety is of the utmost priority. Um, and part of that planning, and I, and I appreciate everything that the parents on the panel say, and, and I, my uh, children are college age, so uh, we have different kinds of uh, challenges that we're facing with that. Um, but, I, but I know that, that people do want to be able to plan. Part of that is planning for the reality of remote learning if, if and when it's necessary. And, and I know that there are a number of districts that are delaying the start of school uh, because of you know, being located in a hotspot county uh, like Mahoning County. Uh, I know that there are a lot of districts that are planning for some kind of hybrid approach to the school year. Uh, but we have to be prepared that depending on what happens, we may all have to at one point or another uh, go to a remote learning situation. And that means we want to make sure the teachers are well-prepared, the parents are well-prepared, and the students are well-prepared for that. Um, Superintendent Perone, you wanted to, uh, you raised your hand. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and obviously we need to be prepared because, listen, any of our plans can change tomorrow. I, I think one of the most important things that we're doing is we have re-entry committees at the district level, at each building level, and the importance of including our teachers and including our support staff in the planning, I, I think is probably one of the most important things, as well as hearing from our community. But uh, I think it needs to be a team effort in how we're gonna open our building safely. Dr. Esper, can this be done safely, reopening schools this fall? Well, you know, that's obviously what's on everybody's mind right now. And, and, and you know, and, and, you know, listening to everything, everything that's already been said, there's, there's a couple of things. One is, is just the uncertainty, uh, you know, that, that a lot of people have expressed uh, and the concern that goes along with that, as well as the recognition that things have been changing on us ever since this virus came out uh, back in uh, February, March. Uh, this virus has been throwing curveballs and recommendations early on have turned out not to, you know, to, to change or to have to be adapted. And, and we, uh, you know, looking forward in the future, we've seen what all the changes we've had to make and all the uh, things that we said initially and then had to change subsequently uh, that we've done over the last six months. We are probably going to be doing that again. Uh, the, you know, we're still learning a lot about this virus. And, you know, as I've been telling everybody, it's, it's like, you know, we're in the middle of the game and we're still learning this virus's playbook. Uh, it's not the best way uh, to go through a pandemic, but this is unfortunately what, you know, the cards that we've been dealt. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, there, there are still some truths that have been holding uh, steady. 
in, in how we're seeing what this virus wants to do. Uh, talking to uh, you know, what Scott brings up about how, um, you know, what age groups have been affected. Uh, we're seeing more and more younger age groups uh, becoming uh, recognized as being infected. However, the, the disease itself is still primarily in the older age groups, are still primarily in individuals who have underlying problems with high blood pressure and diabetes, et cetera. But we are seeing more and more children and more and more young adults uh, that uh, have been uh, affected by this virus. We've never said that children were off the hook. We've always recognized, and I think everybody here who is a parent knows how a bad virus can go through uh, and cause you know, a bad, uh, uh, problems in children, problems in young children. A lot of times they get better. And with this virus, we've seen that majority, uh, in a majority of those children who are you know, under the age of 20. But what we are seeing now is we're recognizing is that younger adults in their 30s and 40s, which honestly is a uh, large population of you know, uh, school teachers, staff, you know, that, that they also have to recognize that, uh, you know, that, that, that they can get sick. And we do have to understand that children can get sick. But thankfully, if there's one redeeming quality of this virus is that it doesn't cause severe disease in young children many or, or a lot of the time. But it's not that they can't, it's just that they don't very often. Superintendent Perone. Yes. And, and, and again, as we said earlier, that, that's the concern of, as a leader, you're not planning for one age group, you're planning for multiple age groups and how to keep everybody safe, um, but still how to continue the education. Um, and it's tricky, you know, obviously the more we can track and learn about the disease helps make our plans um, a little bit more safer. Uh, so we're, we're, we're always interested to continue to hear from the medical experts um, about the coronavirus. Ricky. Well, I kind of want to backtrack and double back a little bit um, back to um, Carla and her situation of multiple children or multiple districts involved. And I want to ask Dr. Esper, um, how do we, what is the plan? So my district is going remote. We're starting remote. That's what we were told. We weren't told it would be all year remote. So I'm looking forward to more information from that. But I want to know how do we keep the kids safe and the parents safe and the staff safe when there are so many people that change, interchange counties, districts, um, and everything of that nature. Like it's a completely interwoven system. My district has a lot of transient students where I have students just moving from sides of town where, you know, just the rules within the schools themselves need to be kind of on the same plane. But I'm asking Dr. Esper, how do we, what is the plan that, that you know of so far for multiple the quarantine situation, basically. How do multiple people have to be quarantined for if somebody is exposed or is test positive? Carla, did you want to uh, add on to that? Sorry. Do you mind if I add? No, go ahead. Yeah. So um, being the teacher that I am, I, I made sure I typed out some points I really wanted to make sure that I got out that have really been wearing me down. And I exactly agree with what you're saying. So for example, my husband is a teacher. Say he were to get sick, do all his students quarantine? Would that mean that I would have to quarantine 
would my personal children who go to Gerard have to quarantine? And then would all the kids in my kids' classes have to then quarantine? Um, like, where would the chain end with that? Um, and then with that said, like, should I have, like, would you recommend since my kids are going to be exposed to all these different school systems? Uh, my husband teaches high school. I teach elementary school. Um, would you suggest them, my personal children, learning virtually? Because that kind of, I almost feel like I'm being, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, not disrespectful. I have to make a choice between. Yeah, like, but almost being like um, uh, uneducated or I can't think of the word, but sending my kids a drawer knowing that they potentially could be carrying the virus just because we're being exposed to so many different kids. Like, it's, oh, irresponsible. I guess is what, is that irresponsible for me to send them to their classroom? What are your thoughts on that? Doctor? Okay, uh, a couple of points there. Uh, one, uh, no one is being irresponsible here. Um, you know, the answer is, is that there is no one size fits all solution to this problem. A lot of each district, each school system has a certain amount of resources, certain amount of capabilities, a certain amount of space, certain amount of uh, uh, things that they can do and they, they can't do. And it very well may be different between school to school, from district to district and place to place. Um, and I know that each and every one of them are working very hard and to do what's best for their um, children. Uh, and, the, and, and the staff that they care for. Uh, what I will say uh, is that also, though, when you talk about um, you know, all the different children, you're, you're going to have to make basically a, a family decision. You can't have two people in, you know, two children in your house distance learn and three people, three children in your house going off to, to school. All right. It's, it should be either, you know, everybody goes to, you know, into school or, or everybody stays home. If you, if you send, you know, several kids out and have two kids home, it just doesn't make sense. You're going to still see that, uh, you know, an exposure and, and you're probably defeating the purpose of the, of the home learning, uh, of the distance learning by having other children go out. So you have to decide how many, you know, what, what type of, uh, system you're going to do. If you have one or two children, it might be easier. Uh, some of us with four or, you know, three or me, five, uh, you know, we all make, uh, we have to make these, these types of decisions, you know, in a group. You have to look also about who's, you know, what's your risk threshold? Do you have someone who lives in your household who is at high risk? Is there someone in your household, you know, is it grandparents that you're living with? Uh, or is there someone with an immune issue or uh, underlying lung issues that can get really, really sick? You have to make those decisions, but those are a family decision. Now, when it comes to who stops and who, you know, if, if who's exposed, who's not exposed, who quarantines, who doesn't quarantine, uh, in general, uh, you know, while contacts of people who get sick are, are, are encouraged to stay home, all right, contacts of contacts do not. So if someone is sick and your child uh, or, let, you know, or, or someone, your child uh, is, um, you know, exposed to that person who did get sick, that child probably should stay home to see and, and watch. But the other members of the family, unless that child actually gets sick and gets symptomatic or has, you know, fevers and cough, etc., the, the family members do not need to quarantine. So contacts of contacts do not need to quarantine, but those contacts of the individual who is found to be infected should. I hope that helps. Amy, did you raise your hand? Yes. I did. Yeah. I did. Um, 
just to kind of build on that, I, I'm glad you said that because my family actually did get tested. A friend of our son tested positive, but he was asymptomatic. So we all just went and got tested because he spent a lot of time with him. So it's good to know where you draw the line. Like maybe he just needed to be tested and he needed to be, you know, kind of quarantined a little bit rather than the rest of us. But I do have two children that have asthma which we usually are very cautious with when there's a virus. They've been hospitalized from viruses when they were younger. And I have three who have a life-threatening food allergy. So we've always lived a little cautious. And maybe it's um, naive of me to think that I would live the same way with this virus, basically. And maybe you can expand upon that. Just because we've always had to live cautiously, wipe things down, watch what we eat try to avoid, you know, certain situations, but yet they're very active kids. So we don't want to take away a life from them just because they have certain, you know, health concerns. Um, but also, is it, you know, if so-and-so is carrying it, at any point in time, anybody we're around could be carrying it. So does staying home and, and par- participating in only certain things even make sense? Like they go to sports, but they don't go to school, if that makes sense. Thank you, uh, yeah, yeah. If I can answer uh, real quick, yeah, that that is a, a a good point. Whether or not you know, not just do half of them, you know, do you stay home and and uh, do distance learning, but then you go off and do travel sports. Um, it, 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 at that, you know, in that in that situation, I think it's kind of the same thing as you know, exposing yourself to a multitude of other children uh, and and their parents and their families as everybody also goes uh, to these events. Uh, especially if they're enclosed. Remember, this virus loves enclosed spaces. Uh, you know, outdoor, uh, outdoor events are, are a lot safer than those that are held in an auditorium or in, a, uh, in, in an arena, um, especially when you're sitting in one place for a long period of time. Uh, that's kind of what, what this virus would love uh, for everybody to do. Um, there is no uh, uh, recommendation by the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Lung Association that I'm aware of that says children with asthma should not go to school. Um, It is well recommended though that the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, the Cleveland Clinic, uh, our division in the Center of uh, Pediatric Infectious Disease also agrees, um, Centers for Disease Control, uh, even the Ohio uh, Department of Health do understand that it is better for children to go to school. It is is healthier for children to be at school, just because it's not just the learning environment is better, but is also there's a, there's a lot of other um, things that these children need from an emotional support, um, from uh, development of their maturity. Uh, some of them need uh, some of them helps with uh, uh, food, uh, as well as mental health. Um, all these uh, support systems are in place at school, and we understand that a school environment is the best. Uh, the The issue right now is when and how can we make sure that each of the schools are as safe as possible? Nothing is 100% safe, guys. Even staying at home is not 100% safe. Uh, you guys, are, so there's always going to be some level of risk. It's, it's exactly when uh, do, the, the, do the, uh, the benefits outweigh the risks or vice versa that we have to make a decision for uh, getting kids back into school. Uh, Scott. Yeah. And actually what, what uh, Dr. Esper was just saying, and, and he made an earlier comment um, that I think uh, emphasizes the same point. Um, a lot of the decision-making 
really does depend on the resources that are available. So if you are in a school that has poor indoor air quality, they don't have a, an up-to-date uh, HVAC system, uh, or you know, have, has really large class sizes, uh, or doesn't have uh, school nurses you know, in the building or things like that, you know, that, makes it, that makes it challenging. And so one of the things that, that we've been saying throughout this, this whole time, uh, and it was really clear with the initial shutdown, and I think it's even more clear now, and that is that we have fundamental inequities in our system. And we need our uh, state and national leaders, and especially right now, we need the Congress to act uh, to provide resources to make sure that recognizing what, what a lot of people are saying, that, that you know, everything being equal, uh, we'd rather have kids in school. We got to make sure that we have the resources to ensure that school districts have what they need to keep, keep kids and staff safe. Uh, and so that's why we need uh, the Senate to step up and act on a uh, relief package. Uh, again, addressing issues like air quality and, and PPE, uh, also addressing issues like technology access and making sure that, that everyone can count on high-speed uh, Wi-Fi and internet access and that there are uh, technology devices that students have access to. Um, all of those things are, are really critical. Unfortunately, uh, we have national leadership that's saying, you know, we're going to punish schools that don't open rather than providing schools what they need to open safely. Uh, and so uh, the, the situation among all the districts, you know, whether you're talking about Youngstown or Struthers or Boardman or Liberty, uh, I mean, everybody is facing a little bit different kind of uh, choice because resources are so inequitable right now. Thank you, Scott. Carla? Yeah, I definitely wanted to touch base on this. So um, in Liberty, uh, and believe me, I want to be back in that classroom more than anything. Um, teaching online, honestly, I feel like I put in more time and effort just because we were thrown into it so fast. Um, but the things that I'm concerned about with actually going into the physical classroom that I think, and you and I talked about this, um, you know, you forget what it's like to be around 25, seven and eight year olds. You remember what it was like in elementary school, but you know, they're trying to copy it over into the trash can with their tissue. That tissue is now on the floor. You know, they lost the pencil. They pick up one that they saw on the floor. Um, it, we see those funny things on Facebook, you know, them slingshotting the mask across the room. Like it's going to happen. And honestly, it's, you know, that's kids being kids, that's them socializing, um, you know, sharing a book like, hey, look at this cool picture or, um, you know, wiping their boogers on their desk. That's what kids do. Mm -hmm. And um, my classroom is very small. I have one window and last year I had 25 kids. Um, there's no way I would even be able to space them out three feet apart. My biggest concern, and I would make it work, like whatever they tell me to do, I'll make it work to get those kids in the classroom. My concern is it is so developmentally inappropriate to have 25, seven or eight year olds sitting at a desk for seven hours straight in a day. This is what I'm hearing that they're saying we should do. Mm -hmm. Having their special teachers come in, like they're not allowed to, you know, move from their seat. They stay in their seat. We sanitize every hour. I don't see how that like would be at all enticing to a seven or eight year old. Um, I have uh, gotten a lot of grants, so I have flexible seating in my room and that helps with behavior and them moving and you know, the kids that may have a disability with ADHD or have other disabilities. Um, 
like, I just don't see how that's possible without getting that additional funding, um, you know, from the state. Uh, we also don't have air conditioning, which I know air conditioning, I heard, spreads the virus. But to think about my classroom, it literally sometimes is over 90 degrees in my classroom. And then us all wearing masks or even just me wearing a mask. Um, I don't know how I would do it. And I'm pretty healthy. I'm 35. Um but I know, uh, like my teachers, I teach with in second grade. One's very uh, has uh, diabetes. One has asthma. Um, you know, I'm concerned for their health. What if they become ill? Um, we have a shortage of subs. So, are their kids going to come with me? Who's going to watch those kids? I just don't know. I I can't. I want them back in the classroom, but I wonder if it's just going to be. Would it be better for us to start virtually? And work this out while everybody's safe rather than, you know, let's figure out what happens as we go along and then these kids have nobody. And I also heard something, I, I keep seeing things about these kids, you know, where their outlet, you know, maybe they're abused at home or not taken care of or they don't have the food. Um, I worry about those kids that if they were to get sick and, um, from being exposed at school and then they have nobody to take care of them or what if their teacher gets sick and that's their only like safe outlet and they see their their teacher sick or their principal sick or their recess monitor sick um there's just two sides to every story and you know some days i'm like oh let's go back full force if we get it we get it and then some days i'm like i just i want to be safe i want to be you know go virtually um and i definitely see it from both ways but i do know as of right now my school and I love my school and they do the best that they can. We don't have what we need to go back for us to be safe. If we were to go back five days a week, 25 kids in my class, I don't know how physically we could make that work safely, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm sorry to ramble on and on no. about that, but that's just like everything that I've been thinking about all summer. Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad we have, you know, a doctor here that, I feel like I already feel better about the different school situations, hearing from a professional. Um, too many people are rambling on Facebook with their opinions, and I don't know what to believe, you know? So I, I'm glad that we have a professional here. I'm glad that we have the representative from the teachers union as well, because um, there's just a lot of things that I'm very confused and anxious about. Dr. Esper? Yeah, just to... to uh... I can't go through everything uh, that we just talked about, but just one thing, uh, air conditioners are not necessarily uh, a conduit for um, uh, this particular virus. Uh, what it does, what is a conduit is um, poor airflow. And so if you're able to increase the, the flow of air in and out of the room, that's one of the best things that you could do. And I know that's things that the superintendents have been um, watching. I mean, I'm, I'm sure when they took the job of superintendent, they didn't think that they had to be an airflow and aerodynamics expert, but uh, you know, these are how our jobs change. <laughs> uh, but the answer is that the air conditioners itself does not uh, uh, part, uh, uh, distribute uh, this particular virus. But um, if you have, as, as already mentioned, if, if it is poor airflow or poor uh, HVAC system that doesn't allow for an airflow, then that can be a problem. Now, that may be as simple as you just make sure your windows are open and fans are blowing and things can, can work out that way. I, it, you know, I'm, that, I'm oversimplifying things. I am also not an aerodynamics expert. Um, so I'll leave that to Scott down below. But um, it's just one of those things. And, and to that point, as you said, there's a lot of misinformation out there, out there. There's a lot of things that you read that people have read and have posted and they don't necessarily follow the, the, the scrutiny 
Um, but it sounds plausible and then people get worried about it and these things have a tendency to augment uh, online. Um, but uh, that's just one point that I wanted to make. Dr. Esper, could you, can you just mention if those face coverings, kids, I know I find it hard to have, have it on more than 10 minutes at work and I'm, I'm an adult. You should come to my job. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. Healthcare workers have done enormous, uh, tremendous work uh, in such a way that that I feel humble that I'm I'm even uh, doing what I do because you you guys are masked all day. Yeah. How about um, with kids? You know, with kids, it is um, uh, uh, it, it's a little tough. Um, I, obviously, you know, I've been used to it, but I've been doing it for over 20 years. So, you know, you you kind of get used to it. But even then. Even up until this point, we weren't wearing a mask continuously, you know, 24-7 at least at, at, the, at the workplace. Um, and so uh, it's, it's even uh, we have to adapt ourselves here in, in medicine. However, um, you know, for the most part, there's, there's a couple of rules. First thing is that the masks do help. All right. We, we have got we're seeing more and more information coming out about how well these masks do inhibit the virus to spread. As we talked about certain individuals who uh, have come into contact with people who are asymptomatic, right? They didn't know that they had, uh, that they were infected um, and uh, they do have the virus, but we don't necessarily know how well they spread, but it's possible that they can spread. And by wearing a face mask, even if you are one of those people who might be infected, but you're just not sick, it does help prevent uh, the spread. It may and this is more of the information right now that's coming out now. It may also help protect you from getting the infected. But the reason we wear the mask is to prevent us from unknowingly, unwittingly spreading the, the infection. Um, but these cloth masks are not de- were not designed to prevent to protect the wearer. It was uh, designed to protect the individuals around the wearer. Now we're starting to see that there is some protection, um, not as as good as those uh, N95s and the the surgical mask that we wear in the hospital, but you know, if, if, if you only, you know, if it's 50% protection, that's better than nothing. Um, and so uh, some of, you know, wearing the masks do help. Now we do recommend at least the Ohio, when you look at the Ohio recommendations, they do not recommend those in, uh, 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 I wanna say age, uh, ages in the third grade or below uh, from wearing the masks. Uh, the general rule of thumb certainly is uh, if, if a child is, too young to take a mask off, then they shouldn't have the mask on. Um, now, obviously, second and third graders probably are able to do that, but the, as I saw, the Ohio uh, recommendations were for third grade and above, I think, should be wearing the masks and those below should not. Um, uh, certainly, when you're exercising, uh, it is not uh, recommended that you wear the masks, all right? You need oxygen. There's a reason that we breathe, uh, and uh, that if you are exercising um, or in competition, you should not be wearing uh, those masks. Obviously, when you're swimming, you should be not wearing masks. Um, so there, there are certain rules, but the masks do help when you're talking about learning, when you're talking about being in a room um, or walking in a hallway, uh, the recommendations both at the state, uh, at the federal level, um, are the recommendations are to um, wear uh, these face coverings and that in from the science standpoint, they do help minimize the spread of this infection. Thank you, Dr. Scott. I just want to, and I know Ricky was uh, waiting to jump in too, but, but one thing that I think is, that I think would be helpful because we, we do know 
that there are concerns about how um, how hard is it going to be to have students uh, adapt to wearing masks. I think I think this is where parents play an important role. Uh, that we're not waiting until the start of school uh, before we start first modeling ourselves uh, mask good mask wearing behavior. Anytime that we're out in public, that, that we're wearing masks. Uh, wherever we happen to live in, in the state, whether we're in a red county or not, um, but also that we we start getting our, our children in the habit of, of wearing masks as well. Uh, let's let's try to minimize the spread before school starts, uh, but let's also get kids used to wearing the mask so that so that uh, if that's the expectation of school, uh, teachers aren't aren't dealing with that struggle because the kids are already used to. It. Ricky. Um, just real quick, two things. One, so I have a 10-month-old baby and I have school-aged children. Um, I want to kind of ask, how will they, when should I quarantine the baby from the children? Because, you know, at first I kept her home. She doesn't go to the store. Um, I keep her kind of safe in a way, but she still plays with the kids because they don't really go anywhere. So when they start school or when they go out and do school activities, when, would it, when should I kind of keep her separate? because I feel like her immune system isn't as strong as theirs just yet. And the other question was, um, for children with asthma, um, when, when does, I know asthma can develop. So I had sports-induced asthma when I was a kid, but it was only sports-induced. I only used inhaler twice, I think, in my entire life. When does that, um, when do parents start checking for that? I'm asking, I have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 10-month-old, and a 12-year-old who's not with me, but he's you know, I have these certain age children. When do I start to look for those things? Doctor? Yeah. Um, okay. First, first thing, um, when you have multiple kids in the family, when do you uh, uh, so to speak, quarantine? And I would actually put this in kind of two, two, uh, um, two levels. All right. For, for one thing, you cannot split up the family. All right. You should not be splitting up the family. In, in, a, in a family, you share many things. You share... Uh, your culture, you share your food, and you share your germs. Uh, and unfortunately, that's just the way these, these the families work. And, and when we see uh, patients with coronavirus uh, who actually have infection and coronavirus, it's a high degree of those people who are in the same household uh, will also have uh, an infection. They may not be sick, um, or they may even be asymptomatic, but they also generally have uh, evidence that they were also affected as well. Um, I would definitely say for the baby in this particular situation, you know, the, the best time to uh, keep the baby away is when one of the other children are actually sick. So just like we would with any other virus, all right? If they had strep or if they have pneumonia, which are very normal, uh, or if they have the flu, again, normal, but another virus, etc. You want to keep the other kids away from the person who's having the fever and the cough and, you know, maybe some chills. And you keep them uh, apart from the rest of the family and you designate someone to go in there. Uh, you know, one of the adults to go in there and, and, and assist the children uh, that, that's sick and keep the other children away until that um, the sick child is better. Um, but if, let's say, uh, uh, in the situation that one of your older children, uh, somebody in their class was positive, and maybe then they're asking the class, uh, the members of that class to stay home to watch uh, because they were a contact. Um, I wouldn't necessarily mean that that means that child who was a contact, not sick, but just a contact, has to then uh, go into a full quarantine within the household itself. Uh, you may want to minimize, all right? You may not want to have direct contact to, you know, the baby, you know, being held or cared for by that particular individual. So that's a, a little bit less 
But if they're not sick and they're not developing symptoms, um, I still think that you have to stay together as a family unit. Uh, and, and so that's kind of how I would play it. Uh, it's kind of a, a two-tier two type system. Uh, Carla and then Amy. This kind of goes along for it, but I, I wanted to ask Scott. Um, in the situation of my husband and I, and I don't know if this, I, I don't know much about the union thing. I try not to, it's just, I don't know a lot about it. But um, say that he, he were to contract coronavirus at school and, you know, he has to stay home. And then doctor said, um, you know, if, if you're in close contact with the person with the virus, I would stay home. But my students probably wouldn't have to. Do you know right now where they're standing at with sick days? Like, do we use our sick days if we have the coronavirus or is that going to be something separate? Um, I keep hearing a lot of different things and I'm not sure. So, um, that's a, that's a good question. And, and, uh, there are a couple of different factors uh, that will influence the answer. Uh, there is new federal law, the Families First uh, Coronavirus Response Act, that um, that does provide uh, additional leave for people that, because of their exposure to the virus, um, you know, the opportunity for leave without being penalized by by having to take your sick days. Uh, and we're lobbying for an extension of that uh, okay. in Congress right now. So there, so that's kind of a first line of protection. Um, but then depending on, uh, your, each of your school district contracts and what you have negotiated as far as sick leave, uh, and other kinds of leave, uh, that's something that, that, you know, we would support you as, as you work with your school district administration to see, uh, what the appropriate, uh, course of action would be on that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to know that you are pushing for, uh, that federal extension too, Scott. Thank you. Amy. I kind of have two two points I want to address. First is like towards the education aspect of it and for our educators. I just want to make sure that our educators know as parents that if we want to send our kids to school, it's not because we're trying to be selfish or we need babysitters or anything along those lines. It's more that, at least for me, I look at education as a science and you know, that's what my child needs. They need that face-to-face. They need that relationship with their teacher. They need to have the interaction of asking questions in the moment um, that you're qualified to do. I look at you all as essential workers, as I would a nurse, a doctor, a person, you know, working outside of the home right now. So I just want to make sure that's very clear, that whatever somebody chooses, it's not to be selfish. To a degree. It's to do what they think is best for their kid. Um, that being said, we obviously, I've worked with committees that work on school funding. So I'm, you know, a little bit concerned that schools are already underfunded. And, you know, now we have all of these things in place that, you know, they barely can cover the essentials. I've worked in the schools just to help with volunteering and whatnot. And um, the state really needs to step up to make sure that each school gets the proper funding to provide a safe environment for our children. Um, so that was one point. The second point was more for the doctor. Um, I've heard that they may test the kids for sports if they go back to sports for school um, before games and matches. 
Um, to me, that seems like a waste of testing, and maybe I'm wrong, but um, I don't know if they can force it or not force it, but if you test on Monday and your match is on Tuesday, you don't even have your results till Wednesday, and you could have it by then. So I just don't know what the answer for that would be if that seems like a waste of testing and we should just watch our symptoms and do what's best in the moment. Want me to go next? Uh, no one? Sure, doctor and then uh, superintendent Perron. All right. Uh, uh, from a testing standpoint, we still do not have the capacity to test everybody every day, um, and, and we're not going to get there. Uh, how and, and who gets tested and, and how often, I think, is going to be dependent on the resources and our ability to test. There are many different types of tests out there. Uh, and what, you know, and unfortunately, sometimes there's been kind of people have been using, well, you're going to be screened and they think that means you're going to be tested. Um, screening is just asking people whether or not they're having fever, um, whether or not they're having symptoms. Um, or sometimes people say, well, you're going to be tested, but that means they're just going to do a fever check. Uh, there are certain types of tests that will come back in 15 minutes. And then there are other kinds of tests that won't come back for five days. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's good. It, it's going to be different, but, um, you know, if you're testing individuals, uh, you know, before a sporting event, um, you know, that's, that's, I can, I can see that, but I don't necessarily, it really depends on whether or not you have the ability to, to get those tests and to get those test results to you. Uh, and and I, I haven't seen many people that, that have those types of, uh, uh, at least those capabilities to do it for a large number of uh, children. Uh, and, and a very short turnaround with um, all the testing supplies. I mean, testing supplies themselves, you know, we were having issues with swabs. We're having issues with viral transport media. We're having issues with testing strips um, as well as capacity for the, for the machines themselves. And so it, it seems, un, un, well, I won't, I won't, I'll never say never, but boy, that, that does seem like a tall task. Uh, that being said, if you're sending kids to school, all right, if you are sending your kids to a classroom, and that is the same thing as you're sending them off to go play at a sports, just like we talked about the battle or, or not so. If you do not want your child to be exposed and you, you, you said for your family, the best decision is to stay home and distance learn, distance learn, then you're also basically making that same decision that you're probably not going to be sending them for that very same reason off to sporting events um, just because there's so much more exposure. Um, so that was, I think that's, that's one point there. And then I'll leave Scott for the other. Uh, Scott, do you want to go first and then superintendent Perone? Actually, I think, I think superintendent Perone was going to. Okay. Okay. I agree with, with everyone saying, and, and that was with our plan, we're providing choice. Um, you know, you have a all in option where you're coming back five days a week, or we're offering a remote option. Because I agree, as, as a parent, we know our family situations, we know the health of our kids, and we know what we're comfortable with. So we felt that that was super important to provide the choice. And I you know, also agree with Scott, you know, the, for years, schools have been underfunded. And the, the cost to make sure our kids and our, our teachers are safe is astronomical. Um, but it's, it's a necessity, and we need the funding for all schools. Thank you, Pete. Um, Amy, you talked about school funding. Uh, Scott, can you 
talk a little bit about where we're at in terms of is there enough PPE? Is there uh, capabilities to social distance? How are you feeling about the district's uh, plans? Because they're varied across the board, 600 plus districts in Ohio, I believe. Right. And, and you know, what is uh, creating an additional burden right now is the fact that because of the economic downturn associated with the pandemic, uh, that means that local communities and the state uh, are really being squeezed in terms of their tax revenues. So uh, the state already has imposed uh, budget cuts uh, that have been painful. Uh, and generally oppose them across the board. Not all districts are, are facing them the same ways. Um, we also have uh, funding pressures from things like school voucher programs, where you're diverting uh, money away from public schools uh, and sending them instead to, to private schools. Um, so we are, we are really counting on the federal government, uh, which is uniquely positioned to be able to provide uh, support. And one of the specific things that we're asking for is money for PPE. Uh, we believe that that anyone who is required to uh, wear PPE to, to be safe, they need to have that provided to them by the school district. Uh, and there is a there's a cost to that. And that's a, you know, it's not going to be there forever, but it is uh, something that's going to be there for uh, for a while. Another cost is is substitute teachers. Uh, you know, when you have um, either when you're trying to navigate some kind of hybrid plan where students are partially in, partially out, or whenever you're responding to a situation where somebody's been exposed or somebody's uh, somebody's positive for the virus and has to be quarantined, you have to have uh, adults there to provide supervision for the for the students that are still in school. And so, all of those things are essential. The problem with Ohio's school funding system is that it is largely based on property tax wealth, uh, and it's also dependent on uh, the willingness of a local community to uh, pass levies, you know, in order to make sure that there are resources. Um, so, so we depend on the state and we depend on the, on the national government to provide resources to, to help equalize opportunities um, so that you don't have those kinds of disparities. Uh, and right now, it's especially important because we're dealing with emergency needs uh, that we don't typically see. Uh, it's close to three. I'd like uh, some final words from each of you, uh, if that's okay. I appreciate the time so much. Carla, did you want to say something first? Oh, no, these can be my final words. Too. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So um, the only other point I really wanted to make um, from a teacher and a parent perspective was I, I really wanted to point out that we were thrown into that online learning at the end of the year and that I, I would hope now in talking to our administration that the online platforms um, and Mr. Perone, you could probably um, attest to this, are going to be more of a concrete virtual classroom rather than just like, oh, we're going to do Zoom here, we're going to do this here, this here. Um, hoping that it's more of an agenda where like parents know exactly this is what needs to get done today so they can easily check it. Um, and a couple other points I want to make as like a parent, um, so many things were being brought up like, um, this is a free website, try this, try this, try this, and it was too much. Um, you know, really, if we're going to do the virtual, like really come up with like an agenda 
and that's what they have to do each day so the child can check it off. Um, and you and I talked about, too, about the uh, paper copies. Um, I know myself, I don't like buying ink. <laughs> so, like, I would want my school to provide me with the paper copy if that's what it's going to be. Um, and another thing I noticed with my kids, because I have one going into fifth, one going into first, um, pre-recorded lessons worked better than an online Zoom lesson. That way, if, if um, they had Zoom sessions at the same time and our iPad really is the only thing that works consistently, um, they were able to watch if it was, you know, a pre-recorded, we could do it at our own time. Mm-hmm. Or if while I'm at work, if they're at home, I can help them when I get home rather than them trying to scramble or my dad or my aunt who watches the baby at home trying to scramble um, to get them on Zoom and they might not be as technology um, savvy as I am. So um, having that video recorded lesson, but I just, I feel like some parents might be scared of the virtual option because it was so hodgepodge in the spring and um, administrators have definitely had time to better plan. Teachers have had better time to plan. If that becomes an option, I just think um, it's not going to look the same as it looked in the spring and maybe not to be scared about that. Um, and then another, and then this would be my final point from a, a uh, teacher perspective. Um, I want the best for my kids. And like I said, I, I feel like I end up working harder and more online because I wanted to make sure I accommodated all of them, whether it was me going to the pantry and dropping off food at their house for them, or me answering emails at 10 o'clock because they were a healthcare worker and, and couldn't answer, you know, talk to me during the day. But um, just be gentle <laughs> with the educators because uh you know, we were on call 24 seven and we have our own families too. And we, we definitely sympathize and empathize with, with that situation. And we want what's best for the kids, regardless of what it is. As long as we have what's safe in the classroom, we're ready to go in the classroom. But if not, I just really think, um, don't be scared of the virtual learning. I think it's going to be a lot better than when it was in the spring. And again, that was a lot to ramble, sorry. <laughs> no, excellent points. And I'm glad you brought that up uh, because it really was one day they were in and one day they were out and people right. had to adapt. And it was uh, pretty chaotic at times for a lot yeah. of parents out there and teachers yeah. trying yeah. to navigate that. Thank yes. you, Carla. You're welcome. Amy. Okay. So um, I just want to to mention that, you know, as you said, Carla, you guys were thrown into the fire, basically, in the spring. And the parents were also, but it was definitely on the, the laps of the teachers to figure out all of this technology in a moment. And as far as I'm concerned, I have four kids in four grade levels, and all of our teachers were amazing. They definitely advertised the kids above all. Um, and if you've ever wanted to be the fly on the wall in the classroom to see how your teachers interact with your students, that was your opportunity. There was many times I was in the kitchen listening to the teachers talk. So I think the combination of having maybe the video lessons, but also the moments where they get to connect so they can hear the teacher say, you know, hi, Sullivan, how are you today? Um, that's a big deal to them when they know that there's an adult that knows them and, and acknowledges them. Um, as far as parents go, I just want to make sure that we remember to support our teachers. Uh, they work their butts off, and they're going to have to work twice as hard now. So we have to make sure we do what we can to support them, but also teachers be patient with the parents who are still trying to work and teach at the same time. Doctor, thank you for all of your advice. Um, 
there's so much information out there. You don't know what to believe, what's right, what's not right. So to me, I go straight to our pediatrician and our family doctor, and that's who I listen to. That's it. So I appreciate, Jen, that you've got this organized. Lots of great info. Thank you for being part of it, Amy. Um, let's go with Superintendent Pete Perron, your final thoughts. You know, when it happened, you're right. We had one day to plan. <laughs> so you're in a classroom and the next day you're you're throwing close to 2,000 students on a computer and preparing lessons and so on and so forth. And I said, when it happened to our teachers the next week, this is going to be our greatest opportunity because I believe this now becomes the rebirth of public education and, and the compassion for public education and what our teachers do in the classroom each and every day. Um, I don't know how many organizations in one day's notice can <laughs> be sent home and, and completely run a whole organization. So teachers across, teachers in our district, teachers across the state uh, were amazing and they, need, they needed uh, congratulated for their efforts. Uh, absolutely, online learning will look differently. We obviously had time to plan. And, you know, when you're told you're out for three weeks, well, you think you're coming back in three weeks. <laughs> you don't think you're not coming back for months. So our plan will absolutely include a structured. You'll have your schedule. You'll follow your schedule. We'll have a blend of online lessons, online live, as well as recorded. And I think I think everybody kind of sees those, um, those needs for our students. Uh, just a note for anybody listening that uh, the superintendents, uh, are concerned also about your children. We're concerned about our staff. Our job is to keep everyone safe and uh, have a collaborative effort to make sure that we're, we're putting the plans best in place for everyone. So thanks for including me. And anytime you ever need anything, do not hesitate to, to reach out. I will not hesitate. Thank you, Superintendent Pete Perron. I appreciate it. Um, Ricky. Um, well, I'd just like to say, uh, for the parents, I just want to make sure it, it was, Carla was absolutely right, it was overwhelming, chaotic, um, a headache, it was, it was a crazy time in life, it was. Um, for the parents, I just want to say, remember that you have supports, your teachers are your supports, your principals, support staff are there for questions, comments, concerns. If you don't tell them you have an issue, they'll never know. They can't help you if they don't know that you have this issue. So parents, when you're feeling overwhelmed, reach out. That is what they're there for. This is going to be an interesting time moving forward. So continue to reach out. Let somebody know when you need something because they, honestly, everybody's working and trying to do the best they can. And it's really hard. I know maybe somebody can read minds. I can't. So tell me if you need me. That's what I want to know. You know, um, I want to say thank you for everybody in this forum and to be able to just speak about what is really going on and how we feel. It's a relief on my shoulders because just to hear that other people are going through the same things and having the same concerns and uncertainty and, and safety. And, and we never even talked about transportation guys. So I'm just throwing it out there. There's so much to this as a parent, you have to be concerned about do what's best for you as a parent. Don't worry about the pressure that you may feel from the school system, the district, whoever. If that district is not serving your needs, find one that will. Find a school that works for you. All the options are there. And again, thank you all for having me. And I just heard a baby wake up. So I'm going to hit mute.
Ricky, that couldn't have come at a better time. I appreciate your thoughts and, and your input. Uh, Dr. Esper. Uh, yeah, I, I think two points. One, uh, with this virus, it ebbs and flows. Um, there are high points as we looking at all these numbers that we see all these numbers coming up and things are going up here and then eventually they do come down. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to buy time. We're trying to buy our time until we have effective vaccines or we have effective preventive measures um, and those will come. Um, but two, I would say, and I don't want to be called Dr. Doom and Gloom here, but I will say that this is the uh, uh, fifth or sixth global outbreak of an infection that we've had in the last 20 years. All right, there was the original SARS in 2003, and then bird flu, if we all remember that, back in the mid-2000s, followed by an actual pandemic influenza back in 2009, 2010. And then we have MERS that came out in 2012, and those are just respiratory viruses. Uh, yeah, do you remember Zika? Uh, remember the Ebola issues uh, in 2014 and 15? Um, and now we have uh, this coronavirus. Now, this coronavirus is the only one that really closed everything down because it had the uh, sweet spot of being so infectious and causing severe disease in the very vulnerable populations um, that, that necessitated all this. But that's a trend, guys. And I think what I want to point out, though, is that the lessons that we're learning right now and the investments that we're making in education right now for this type of crisis may very well pay off is as this trend continues in the future. Maybe seven years, maybe never, I hope. But I would guess that there may be other situ uh, similar situations that can come up in our lifetimes that these types of, uh, this type of understanding and these types of lessons uh, will be uh, useful. Excellent. Doctor, thank you. Scott. Uh, first off, uh, Jen, thank you so much for uh, being such a great host. And, and this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I want to first say that I, as, as part of an organization that represents educators from across the state, I've never been more proud uh, of the work of Carla and our members uh, from uh, all across Ohio in terms of, you know, being able to step up and adapt and, and serve the needs of students uh, through some really, really challenging situations. And one thing that's so critical for success is the ability to collaborate and work in partnership with one another. Um, OEA has a strong working relationship with the superintendent's organization and with the uh, school boards and, and with our elected leaders, and we need to continue to work on that. Um, and what that means is those connections and communication and partnerships between parents and teachers uh, and everybody else in our communities is so critical. Uh, we are in this together and uh, we're gonna get through it. Uh, we're gonna get through it because we have each other's backs and because we really care about our kids and we care about our communities. So uh, I, everything that Amy and Ricky said uh, from the perspective of parents I think is so good and, and Superintendent Perron, I really appreciate your leadership in, in your school district and what our other uh, school leaders are doing. Um, I think, uh, as Dr. Esper said, you know, we are dealing with some, some uh, it's a very unpredictable and unprecedented, I guess not completely unprecedented based on, you know, the, the fact that we've seen these, these other outbreaks. But, but for us in, in the system, you know, this, is, this has been challenging. Uh, this is why we really depend on having guidance uh, 
from the state, really, uh, but also, you know, starting with the CDC uh, at the national level uh, to make sure that that decisions, really difficult decisions, aren't driven by politics. That aren't they're not driven by you know gut feelings or or things like that. That they're driven by evidence. They're driven by science. That they're 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 uh, informed by data. And again, we're still learning as we go. But uh, the more we can can have standards that are clear, that are enforceable, uh, that everybody you know follows together within the resources that they have, I think that's going to be really critical in getting through this and getting through this successfully. I'd like to thank you all. Uh, couldn't have had a better panel. I, I think that this is going to be so beneficial to the viewers who see this on WFMJ.com, uh, whether it be on YouTube, whether it be on our app, and, uh, or, or whether it be on uh, our podcast or broadcast, uh, rather. So I appreciate it, and I hope we can continue to do discussions like this. I think it eases anxiety, but also gives us really important information and strength to move forward step by step. Thank you again.